and uh, nice to see the folk from Karam Downs also. Um, I'm not going to uh, say much more except that it's really nice to be with you again and to see familiar faces and uh, to share with you from the Word. So let's go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And um, I, I want to share with you tonight and uh, Sunday mornings two sessions on uh, John the Baptist's message. And um, I want to give an introduction uh, this evening. Uh, I've been teaching through the Gospel of Luke, and I'm still in, I think I'm in chapter 4 now, uh, back in our home assembly. And have really been challenged by the message of, um, of John the Baptist and the similarities between his message and uh, our situation uh, today. And so let's read Luke chapter 3 um, and we'll read um, through verse 6. Verses 1 through 6. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea, in the regions of Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Um, I, I really love Luke because Luke is um, so precise in his writing. Um, I, I remember at seminary studying the uh, Gospel of Luke and um, the book of Acts um, and uh, looking at how, uh, whether in fact he is a true historian. And in fact, Luke is a true historian. He, he writes very, very highly together with other great historians of the time, like Josephus and Pliny and others. Um, his, his detail is remarkable. Uh, the problem with Luke is that there is a tradition amongst um, older pastors and theologians uh, to say that, uh, that Luke is suspect because Luke mentions a whole bunch of things, uh, details, um, that is not backed up by history. And so they say, well, you see, history doesn't speak about some of the things that he speaks about. But as time has gone on, he has been vindicated and, um, and further research into history and uh, archeological work and so on has proven him to be accurate. And in fact has proven the inspiration of Luke in many ways. And so he is, a, he is an amazing uh, writer. Uh, he writes with incredible detail, attention to detail, and, um, and yet he writes very, very precisely concerning the Lord Jesus. Um, and so I, I really enjoy Luke. Uh, Luke is, um, is a Gentile, just like me. Um, and so he writes with a little bit more of a Gentile mindset rather than a Hebrew mindset. And of course, there's nothing wrong with a Hebrew mindset, but obviously because we're Gentiles, we relate uh, easier to a, a Gentile way of thinking, a Greek way of thinking rather than a Hebrew way of thinking. 
And so he begins and he sets uh, very accurately uh, John's ministry and obviously Jesus' ministry um, in the context of history. And he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. You don't get more accurate than that. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Caesar, uh, Tiberius Caesar was the second Caesar, uh, and so he followed Caesar Augustus. Remember when Jesus was born, Augustus was the Caesar, and uh, then he was followed by Tiberius. And Tiberius was the Caesar that you read about right through the Gospels. So he is the Caesar. He was uh, um, uh, in power at the crucifixion, at the time of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. So he covers that whole period uh, from the uh, beginning uh, or from, from the beginning of Jesus and uh, John's ministry through to the end. Um, I think he, um, he was replaced in 42 and then Pontius Pilate, we know about Pontius Pilate, and then Herod the Tetrarch, this is not Herod the Great, um, and I'm not going to get into the Herods, remember there's a whole bunch of Herods in the New Testament. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes we read about Herod and we say, well, it's all the same guy. Uh, no, there, there was a whole lot of them. Um, and so this is Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Eturia, and the regions of Trachonitis and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. Why does he mention all of those uh, Roman rulers? And remember that they are all Roman ru rulers. The, the Herods claimed to be Jewish, but they were not Jewish. They were uh, Edomites, they were uh, Amalekites in the true sense of the word. And remember, uh, the Amalekites were the enemies, the perpetual enemies of Israel. Um, and God says, I will have indignation in the book of Malachi against uh, Amalek forever. Um, and so they are not Jews. While uh, they claimed the, the title king of the Jews, Herod uh, the first claimed the title king of the Jews. Uh, he was not king of the Jews. He could not be because he was not born uh, a Jew. He wasn't of the tribe. And so, uh, so why does he mention all of these, all of these kings? Well, he's, he's setting it in a particular political uh, environment, context. And so really, I believe what he is saying is that Israel does not have a king on the throne. They're under Roman rulership. And, of, and, and all of these men, and you can research the history of these men, and some of them appear in various places in Scripture, all of them were wicked, immoral, vicious men. None of them were righteous. Pontius Pilate, we know he was the one who presided over the, the mock trial of Jesus and uh, had Jesus crucified. Pontius Pilate was weak. Um, he was morally weak. And yet at the same time, he covered his weakness by being vicious and being uh, harsh on the people. And so he, what he is saying is th that Jesus and John come in a political context when things are not good politically. Things are particularly hard for Israel at this time. And remember that this is near the end of Israel's time in the land. Uh, another 40 years and Israel would be dispersed from the land and would be uh, scattered forever. And so he is saying the political scene is what it is. And it continues. And John is preaching in that political context. We spoke on Wednesday night about our response to the moral situations in the world today. But I'm not going to get into that. And then he says, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. 
Why does he mention them? Well, obviously, partially he is dating this. We understand that. He's giving a, a, a specific time. And remember, they weren't calculating A.D., uh, you know, at that time. Uh, but he is putting, the, uh, he's, he's putting a date to it. But he's putting a context to it. So he's given us a political context. Now he gives us a spiritual context. And he says, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. But how many high priests are there? This is usually just one. So how come you have two high priests? Well, uh, the, the, the answer is, is, is pretty simple. Um, the title seemed to continue even though you're not in the office anymore. I don't know here in Australia, but in America they will speak of President Clinton, President Obama, Governor Schwarzenegger, even though they are not in the, in the office anymore. So once they have vacated the office, they retain the title. But more than that, Caiaphas was still the power behind the throne. He was Annas' father-in-law. He had some of his sons who were ruling before, uh, before Annas, and then he puts, uh, or Annas gets into the position. I'll talk about that uh, in, in, in a moment. And, but he is really the one who is still pulling the strings. And you see that when Jesus is crucified, you see he is still the one who is making the decisions. Uh, but he is not the one who has the job, who is in the office. Now, how did they get in the office? Well, we know in the Old Testament, the way that, they were, that the high priest was selected is specified by God. These men were not spiritual leaders. They were political appointees. They were not of the tribe of the Pharisees. And I'm sorry to give you all the facts, but I want to try and create a, 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 a context here. Um, they were not of the tribe of the, of the, the uh, sect or the uh, party of the Pharisees. They were Sadducees. The Sadducees were the majority. And the Sadducees had entered into an unholy alliance with Rome. And they had a deal with Rome that they would keep the people in check. And in exchange, they would be given authority. They would be given certain liberties to rule themselves under Roman rule, uh, to govern their own religious affairs. Uh, they were given um, freedom within the context of the temple confines uh, to such an extent that uh, they had their own police in the temple. And so if a Gentile, even if a Roman soldier crossed the line from the, uh, from the outer court in towards where the holy uh, place would be, uh, he could be killed. By the, by the Jews. It was on that basis then um, that they uh, later killed Stephen, although Stephen wasn't even in the temple, but they used that prerogative that they had. So they had uh, all sorts of privileges and prerogatives given to them by the Romans in exchange for keeping the people under control, keeping the people quiet and keeping them in check. And, and you see this in the uh, crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Remember what Caiaphas said concerning Jesus. And we take it to be prophetic, but in fact he wasn't really speaking prophetic. You can read it both ways. But, but he was in not intending it prophetically. What did he say? 
It is better that one man die for the nation. Now, we read it that as prophetic and we say it speaks of his atoning death, that he dies for all, that he dies for the nation. Caiaphas didn't mean it that way. Caiaphas said this man is a troublemaker and it's better we have him killed than the people rise up and we all get killed by the Romans. That was what he was meaning. And that gives us an understanding of Caiaphas's attitude. It gives us an understanding of how he was, how he was functioning and how the high priest office was, uh, was used uh, by the Romans. And, and, and more than that, they were paid good money by the Roman, uh, or the Roman government rather allowed them to levy taxes, tithes from the people. You remember if you read the story about Jesus and his trial, you'll remember that it speaks about Caiaphas's palace. His palace. So he lived in a palace. He was very, very wealthy. And so he got a cut of the tithes that was brought to the Lord's house. Um, they got a, a cut of every sacrifice that was brought to the Lord. Uh, they made a law and said, you can't just bring a sheep from wherever because who knows, the sheep may, be, um, may have a latent defect. Remember that what was required of the lamb that was brought at the Passover is it was to be examined for seven days. And the purpose of examining it for seven days to, was to make sure that there was no uh, latent defect, that the thing wasn't sick and would suddenly begin to die because you had to present a perfect sacrifice. And that's, you see that in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Why, and so Jesus comes to Jerusalem um, and in the way that the Roman church ce celebrates it, uh, this coming Sunday is Palm Sunday. A week before Jesus is crucified, he comes into Jerusalem. And he comes a week before the time so that he may be examined and that he may be proven to be without spot and without blemish. And so, uh, to say, so people were not allowed to bring their own sacrifices. You had to buy your sacrifice from an authorized franchise. And every one of those lambs, Caiaphas got his cut off those, off those lambs. Remember, they also had money changes. You couldn't, give the, you couldn't give to the temple in, um, in, in Australian dollars or in uh, uh, whatever money you had in your particular country. You had to pay it in a particular uh, a temple silver. And uh, so you had to do a money exchange. And, um, and, and those of us who travel know that you get, you get done in every time you change your money. Uh, if you change the same uh, $100 into American money and then back into Australia and back into America, very soon you'll have nothing <laughs> because the money changes take a good share of that. Um, and so, and so the, um, the high priest got his cut of, those, of that uh, money exchange that was happening all the time. And remember, Jesus comes into the temple and he drives them out, the money changes and the people who were selling sacrifices because all of those things that were going on the high priest got a cut of that. And you say, well, what has that got to do with John? Well, that's the context in which John is preaching. More than that, we must also understand that God had not spoken to Israel up to this point for 400 years. The last man, and it was interesting for me because I taught through Malachi before we, just before we began in, in Luke, 
And, and Malachi really is a powerful book. I've been powerfully blessed by um, Malachi and by, uh, by John, uh, John the Baptist, and by the book of Peter in these last few months. And, in, and so God speaks through Malachi. In Malachi, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the state of Israel. And Israel is not in a good place. Israel is not giving God his due. They, they're disrespecting God to the degree that they will look for the, for the lamest, sickest animal they've got and present that to God as a sacrifice. And I've just told you that God requires a perfect sacrifice. And of course, you know, Malachi says those very powerful words. He says, take that sick, lame sheep that you're giving to God and give it to the governor and see if he's going to be happy with you. And you know, if we translate that into modern English... If you served God, uh, if you served your boss the way you serve God, would he be happy with you? You see, it's, it's, a, it's a very strong statement. And so, and so Israel was in a terrible state. They'd come back from captivity, and we read more of that time in Ezra and Nehemiah also. They'd come back from captivity. Uh, they had, for the first time in the history of Israel, stopped worshiping idols. For the first time ever. Remember, in Egypt, they started worshiping the idols, and right through the wilderness journey, they served idols, and right through the history of Israel, they were idols. Now, remember that when we speak about Israel serving idols, um, it didn't mean that they, that they totally forsook God, but they put God, remember the first command? You shall not have other gods beside me. So it's not just a matter that, that you're not to have other gods, you not that you have other gods with me, next to me. But that's what Israel was doing. Um, they, 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 had, they would serve God, but they would also serve Baal or um, uh, um, the, uh, uh, the, the various other gods that they had. But for the first time, when they carried to Babylon, they cease worshiping idols. But they come back, and they're still far from God. They cheat God on, his tithe, on the tithes. They, uh, the priests marry Gentile women. And uh, they, the temple is defiled. They allow, remember I just made reference earlier to, an, to the Amalekites. They allow an Amalekite to, to live inside of the temple. The storehouse that was supposed to contain the treasures, or not the treasures, but the, the grain and the harvest uh, that would feed the priests, they, uh, because the, they, they weren't bringing the stuff they were supposed to bring, uh, it seems that the storehouse was empty and they allow this man who's an, who was an enemy of Israel, they allow him to move into the temple. And that gives us a spiritual idea of the state of Israel at that time. And it seems that God comes to a point where he says, I'm, I'm done. I'm not speaking anymore. And God is silent for 400 years. First time in the history of Israel, out after Egypt, first time ever, God does not speak for 400 years. And then he begins to speak through John. He speaks, first of all, obviously, through Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, he speaks to Mary, he speaks to Elizabeth. A few people hear his voice, but it's right close to John. But they, 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 God's only speaking to them, he's not speaking to the nation. 
The first one to speak to the nation is John. Remember, if you go back to Malachi, Malachi prophesied concerning John. And he spoke about John who would come and who would prepare the way for the Lord. And so there's a scarcity of the word. When we speak about the scarcity of the word, it reminds us, of course, of Samuel. When Samuel was a young boy, it says that the word of God was rare or scarce in those days. And there was no open vision. In other words, God was not really speaking either at that time. And then Samuel comes and hears the voice of God. And so Israel is far from God. Israel had replaced the worship of God with a intellectual knowledge of the law. And remember, the, the, so you had these two factions or these two parties. You had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were incredibly carnal. They had no interest in spiritual matters whatsoever. They had little interest in the law. They were political animals who were getting rich out of the people of Israel and, the, and this unholy alliance with the Romans. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were fastidious about the law. We know that. They would tithe on the mint and the anise and the cumin, and yet they would neglect the weightier matters of the law. And so they would argue about the law. Remember at Babylon, they had um, begun this whole uh, idea of the rabbis and the importance of the rabbis. That wasn't something that existed up to that time. Up to that time, it was the kings and the prophets. Uh, but in Babylon, uh, the kings and the prophets fell away, and they had the rabbis, and the rabbis were really academics who studied the scriptures and wrote uh, these, and, and I made reference a few times in uh, different places, and if you weren't there, but to the Talmud. The Talmud is a set, like a set of encyclopedias, of laws and, and rulings and decisions, uh, adding law upon law upon law upon law, really making the word of God uh, of no effect, Jesus says, through your traditions. The traditions are those man-made rules that they had made, the commentaries to the scriptures. And so they had added all of these things. They could argue until the cows come home about the minutest detail of the law, but they had no relationship with God. When Jesus stood before them, the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah, they could not recognize him. They had no spiritual life in them, so in them whatsoever, and yet they had an intellectual understanding of the scriptures. Now, having said all of that, what has that got to do with what I have to say this evening? Well, I've just told you all those things to impress you with my knowledge. No, these things are very important. I believe that John is preaching in exactly the same context as we are preaching today. The political situation is no different. The governments of this world are corrupt. And I'm not making a party political statement. It's, this has got nothing to do with labor or liberal or Democrat or Republican or ANC or DP. This has nothing to do with that. 
Governments today are not different to the Roman government. They're in it for what they can get out of it themselves. Every one of these men that he mentions, were, many of them had bought their position. They had killed to get their position. Because, in order to, because once you got that, you got power. And with the power came money. And it was all about self. It was not about the good of the nation. It, was, it had nothing to do about the good of the people. It was about what they could get out of it. And we find ourselves today in a situation that is absolutely the same. And if you still believe that politicians are there for your good, well, I don't know in what world you live. And I'm pretty sure Australia is no different to America or any other country. And folk, I, 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 I sense that amongst mo many Christians, not most, unfortunately, but amongst many Christians, there's a disillusionment with the governments, whether it's America's or Australia's or England's. I mean, we all see the dysfunction that's going on in England's uh, parliament right now. But it was no different those days. As an outsider, I'm amazed by the the rate at which you guys change prime ministers. But it was no different in Rome. These Caesars didn't last very long because the next one would come and bump the previous one off. And even the other governors, uh, the Herods, they, they would bump each other off and they would, they would um, carry stories to Caesar about what the other guy was doing so that he can get fired, so that they can get the job. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same stuff. And that was what occupied the minds of the world. And that's the same situation we have today. But the religious situation is also the same today. The church, and when I mean the church here, I'm, I'm meaning the visible church. The church is far from God. There is no spirituality anymore. Whether it's on the left, and my understanding, of, my understanding of what is left in the religious uh, um, spectrum really would be the charismatic stuff. And you can swap them around if you like. You can put the left on the right, doesn't matter. And on the, on the right or the other extreme is the uh, intellectualism of Reformed theology. But both of them are bankrupt. Just like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They knew a lot about Scripture. They could argue, they could recite the Scriptures, they knew it off by heart, but they didn't know the author. They didn't know the Lord Jesus when He came. They didn't know their Father, or the one that they called to be Father. And we'll see on Sunday morning that John is saying, the axe is at the root. He's ready to chop the tree out. In fact, they were, as I said earlier, 40 years from being being chopped off, the Israel being uh, dispersed in Jerusalem and the temple destroyed. And so, spiritually, we're in the same place as they were. The word of God is scarce today. And people say, well, you know, there's just, you know, you need to just turn on the television. I don't know how many, um, we, we don't have cable in, in, in America, we just have over the air, but I mean just over the air we get, uh, I don't know, 10, maybe more Christian channels, but none of them contain the Word of God. 
It's all man-made stuff. It's all man-made rules and ideas and philosophies. Exactly what, the, what the, the Jewish teachers were doing at that time. And remember that Amos prophesied and he said there will be a famine. Not of bread but of the word. And we live in a time of a famine of the word. And that and that's, uh, seems strange in the time when we have access to the internet and we, we all have the, most of us have the internet in our pockets and we have access to uh, YouTube and all of these things. But you know, when you listen to all of that, there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of sense in there. There's not a lot of spirituality in there. Maybe a lot of intellectualism. There may be a lot of knowledge, but there's no substance. There's no reality. And so we live in the same kind of environment as John did. But there's another similarity, and that is that John comes before the coming of the Lord Jesus in the same way as we live before the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And I believe that Jesus is coming very, very soon. I believe that with all of my heart. And so John is living in anticipation of the Messiah. He knew he would see him because his job was to prepare the way for him, as he, sa as he says. And so it's in that context then that John is preaching. And you know, my cry has been for the last few months as I have uh, been looking at this passage and looking at other aspects uh, of, the, of, the, of the New Testament. My cry is, Lord, we need another John. We don't have a promise of another John. We know Elijah will come. But Elijah will come during the tribulation. He's not going to come before the rapture. But we need another John who will prepare the way of the Lord. And I don't know that the scripture doesn't prophesy that there will be an individual. So maybe the church needs to step up and fulfill the role of John. And John's role was to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus is coming soon. And part of his, the soonness of his coming is that he is, and I'll speak about this in detail on, on Sunday, but there is a shaking going on. There is a sifting going on. And he is purifying for himself a bride. There are far too many fake Christians, even in good churches. People who are not truly born again. Others who may be born again, but are living so far from God and so much in the world that one doesn't even know if they're still saved or not. Just like Israel. It's not different. And today... We see a shaking going on. Many men who we thought were good preachers, good leaders, falling away one after the other. Some into immorality, others into false doctrine. My heart bled this afternoon as I read again about a, a particular brother, and I'm not going to mention his name, who, is, who, who I know personally, who is very influential in what is known as the remnant churches. And I don't like that term. 
Because it also just becomes another source of pride. Oh, we are the remnant. I hope I'm part of the remnant. But I don't know. I can't say I am the, the remnant. I can't say my church or Kingsway is part of the remnant. But I hope that we are. But this man has a, has a very powerful ministry to the so-called remnant churches. About 18 months ago, maybe a year to 18 months ago, he phoned me. And he wanted to discuss something with me. And what it was, was the need for the church to become what he called more liturgical. Let me translate that for you. More Catholic. More Catholic. In his case, it's not Catholic, but it's Orthodox. 18 months later, he is now publishing books on the fact that the church fathers, without the church fathers, you cannot understand the New Testament. Literally. I read a statement by him this afternoon saying literally that. He said, he said, I used to think that with the Bible alone and the Holy Spirit, I could understand God's will for his church. But I now understand I was wrong. I need the church fathers. Now for those who don't know who the church fathers are, the church fathers are not the fathers of the church. They are the fathers of the Roman church. Not of the true church. The church fathers began in AD 100. The first one was around about AD 100 and they had already deviated from the New Testament. Four years after the book of Revelation is written, they're already on the wrong track. And people are saying they are the ones who, who are enlightened. They are the ones who are going to tell us how we ought to, ought to live and how we ought to structure the church. No, that's what the Roman church is built on. And so... And I, I've just mentioned one man, and I can mention dozens. Men that we thought were true men of God. Men who thought the way we think, who felt the way we feel about the things of God. Going astray, one after the other. And you say, Lord, how is it possible? Will any be saved? He is sifting his church. He is preparing us for his coming. And so John is preaching in exactly that context, the same context as we are. And so it says then that while Annas and Caiaphas were, verse 2, were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, just by the way, I was wrestling this afternoon whether this was really the message I needed to preach. Um, because it's not a particularly dynamic message. It's not particularly exciting. And certainly Sunday morning, just a warning, uh, is not going to be very comfortable. So if you want to stay home, then... <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, was, I was just struggling within myself. Is this... Is this the message I need, to, I need to preach tonight? And I came to this verse. And he went into, sorry, and um, where are we? Verse 3. 
Verse 2. Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias. And something was in the back of my head. And I remembered that Brother John had sent me a text discussing another matter. And he'd made reference to this verse, the word of God. You remember, Brother? The question was about Rhema and Logos. I'm sure he's going to deal with that on Sunday. But I said, and I, I looked it up on my WhatsApp. Yeah, that's the verse. And I knew that this was the message for tonight. So the word of God comes to him, and the word here is Rhema. And I'm not going to get into all of that, um, the difference between Rhema and Logos. The word of God, what he, what he is saying here, he's not saying the word of God, just that God spoke to him, if we put that in plain English. Not the, the Logos in the form of the word, not the Logos in the form of Jesus, but just God spoke to him. We just put that in, 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 in plain English. God addressed him. And you know, that's a, a wonderful thing. And of course, it reminds me again of Samuel. God called Samuel. Nobody was listening. Eli, who was not a too bad a character. He was the high priest, remember, at that time. He, he didn't understand the voice of God. Remember that the Lord called Samuel? How many times, by the way? Uh-oh, careful. Four times. Four times. Yeah, four times. Three times he went to Eli. And Eli said, on the third time, oh, maybe this is God. Eli did not recognize God's voice. And then he goes back and God calls the fourth time and he says, here I am. And so, and so God calls Samuel and God gives Samuel his word. Here God calls John. And you know, just before I continue there, it's, it's, it's interesting and I, one of the things that really struck me as I went through these first chapters of Luke is that, is that none of the people that God spoke to, and remember he spoke to Mary and Joseph and Zacharias and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna. Uh, yeah, Anna. The old people in the temple. None of them were priests. Oh, sorry, Zacharias was a priest, but the, none of them were prominent. None of them had much to say. They were simply ordinary people who were serving God, loved God, and God speaks to them. He doesn't speak to the high priests. He doesn't speak to the Pharisees, to the rabbis. He doesn't speak to the government. He speaks to those simple people who want to hear his voice. And the other thing that's interesting in those chapters is how many times he speaks about people being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's a theme that runs right through the, the, the book of Luke, uh, by the way. And so that tells me then that in John's time, God was no longer speaking through the regular channels. He was now speaking through those individuals who were willing to hear his voice 
and respond to his voice. And the word of God comes to John and it says, in the wilderness, in the wilderness, in the desert, very inhospitable place. There's no synagogue in the wilderness. There's no king's palace in the wilderness. It's just him and God and the animals and drought and heat and discomfort. And I believe it's saying two things to us. First of all, John is not contaminated by the theology of Jerusalem. He is not contaminated by the philosophies of men. He, did, he wasn't trained by those people. He was trained by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, he remains separate. He remains separate. And folk, unfortunately today, because of the internet, it's hard to remain separate. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, uh, please, I'm not suggesting some kind of exclusivism where it's us four, no more, let's close the door. I, I, I'm not suggesting that we, we can't learn from some people. But we need to be careful that our ideas are not shaped by the Jerusalem of today, whatever shape and form that may take. That our thinking is shaped by the Lord. That we hear His voice. But the problem today is that and the, and the internet is a problem because we're hearing all these different voices. And all these different voices are having an impact on the way that we think and the way that we see things. And we're not hearing the voice of God. But John is in a place where it's just him and God. And he hears God's voice. My question to us today is, are we in a place where we can hear God's voice? Are we in a place where we can hear God's voice? And obviously I'm not necessarily meaning, to a, meaning a physical place, but I'm in a spiritual place, in an intellectual place, where we can hear His voice. Or are we hearing the voices of the establishment around us? And folk, I, I know that there's a, there's, a, there's a sense in which we believe, we say, well, the establishment, you know, they, they know stuff. Yeah, the Pharisees knew stuff, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the Father. And remember, one of the indictments against Peter and, and, and the other apostles were, these are ignorant men. They weren't taught by us. One of the problems they had with Jesus is that Jesus didn't have papers because he hadn't learned from one of the Pharisees. And folk, while Israel had reached its zenith, had reached its peak in terms of an intellectual understanding of their theology, they were at a low point in their understanding of God. And Christianity has reached its peak today, intellectually. We have the benefit of 2,000 years of preachers and teachers and, and philosophers and theologians. 
And we have an accumulation of knowledge. And remember, I've made reference to those many books that they, had, that they had accumulated. And we have accumulated many books today. But the Lord is not there. He's in the wilderness. He's where the ones and twos meet with him. Where we're able to be still. I love going to the desert. In California, we have a lot of desert. And I love going up into the desert because there's nothing there. There's no television. There's no voices. It's just the heat and the wind and the voice of God. Can we hear his voice? Is he shaping us? Is God speaking? Is his word coming to us? Or are we hearing the word of Jerusalem? Or are we hearing the word of Rome? And he went into all the region, verse 3, around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance. We speak about that on Sunday for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So I'm going to take another hour to deal with those uh, two, three verses. Another similarity between that time and our time is that there were many well-known figures in rabbinical Judaism. Many of the great sages and rabbis that they still quote today were there at that time. And one of them we know. He was the man who taught Paul. He was one of the, Gamaliel was one of the great sages of all time. He was the son-in-law of Hillel. And Hillel was the greatest of all teachers of all time, as far as the Jews are concerned. And Gamaliel is right up there with them. There's all these names. And folk, we have all the names today. All the theologians past and all those who are living today. And, and you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm horrified when I hear Christians quote this preacher and that preacher and that writer and that author and the other one. But here comes John. A voice. Not a character. Not a personality. Just a voice. And he's crying. He's shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. I believe in the time that we are living today. There are too many names. We don't need any more names. We need voices. Voices that will prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is coming soon, and the church is not ready. Folk, the church is not ready. I have something on my heart for the brethren tomorrow morning in the same, in the similar context. But the church has gone away buying oil. Others' lamps have gone out. This one's doing that. That one's doing that. 
and the Lord is coming. And there's no oil, there's no holiness, there's no anointing, there's no zeal for the house of God. There's very little because we're in the church of Laodicea. We're rich and increased with goods. We have need of nothing. And he says, don't you understand? You don't even know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the state of the church today. We need a voice. So we need voices that will cry in the wilderness of this world and of the church today. Prepare. The Lord is coming. Amen.